0: It is the sentence of this court that Thasius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God.
1: Lutheran Church, Missouri, Synod President, Pastor Matt Harrison, speaking at this year's Issues, Etc., making the case conference.
0: So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age, you shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus, come what may.
1: Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org.
0: Basically, you can't have a hate crime against a group that Yale Law School, Harvard Law School, and The New York Times and NPR don't think is an oppressed minority.
2: And I think that now it is very important to
1: encourage Christians in Finland and everywhere that now it is the time to be open, not to be silent, to be open about your faith.
0: In those kinds of services we have what are called praise teams. I've often wondered why there aren't lament teams. The Bible is not primarily what I would call an upward looking book, but it's a forward looking book. So it's, it's not a book that's so much concerned about the die and go to heaven piece but it's more concerned. I mean, the thing it's fixated on is the resurrection and the renewal of all things. This is Pastor Michael and Lindsey Schmidt of Natoma, Kansas. And whenever we go on vacation, we always take along Issues Etc. to help pass the interstate miles.
3: Issues Etc. Talk Radio for the vacationing Lutheran family. Lord Gary Mangley, please.
1: Why do some Christian denominations seemingly have church fellowship with anyone, everyone? Some are barely even Christian, but they can preach at each other's altars. They can they can administer the sacraments in each other's churches. And other church bodies are very cautious and careful and selective about who they have church fellowship with. What about my own denomination, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? Why is it so cautious? And... Has it always been that cautious? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible. Today we'll talk about church fellowship and that history. Dr. Cameron McKenzie will be our guest. Then it's a listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. That email address, talkback at org, and the comment line 618-223-8382. Joining us for part five of our series on the battle for the Bible to talk about church fellowship, Dr. Cameron McKenzie. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back.
2: Thank you, Todd. Always nice to be with you guys.
1: What did the founders of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Center, believe about church fellowship?
2: Well, as long as we understand that, what we mean by church fellowship. Maybe we should start there. Church fellowship meant the things that Christians do with one another because they're Christian. In particular, preaching the Word of God, administering or attending the the sacraments. That was kind of the essential idea of what do churches do together. And then they talk about the conditions under which churches might do that together. And for the founders of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, The conditions were pretty straightforward. There had to be agreement on the doctrine as taught by the scriptures and confessed by the Lutheran Book of Concord, and not only confessed, but also put into practice. So the standard for whether one church would do sacred things together with another church was exactly that. Agreement in doctrine, namely the scriptures and confessions, and in practice, the things that reflect that confession, that doctrine.
1: What were the standards, if you will, for church fellowship for the LCMS prior to the early 20th century?
2: Yeah, well, it was precisely that. You had to agree in the doctrine, and you had to agree in the practice. Uh, Let me give examples. In the very early days of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, they found themselves in a doctrinal conflict with the Buffalo Synod, which was headed up by a J.A.A. Grabau. And the point of dispute was really over the nature of the ministry, the office of the pastor. Grabau had taught, for example, that the pastor's authority extended beyond the doctrine into, into kind of the material things of the congregation whether you had red carpet or blue carpet etc and the Missouri Synod basically said no that's not correct that's not what the Bible teaches so here the Buffalo Synod and the Missouri Synod both affirmed biblical authority and confessional authority but they did not agree on what that meant in practice regarding the office of the ministry and so no fellowship could be established between Buffalo and Missouri so The standard was, what do you teach and what do you practice as a consequence of your preaching? So uh, I'll give you another example. In the early days of uh, the German migration to this country and extending well into the 19th century, there were congregations which consisted of both Lutheran and Reformed. They were both Germans and they were both Protestants. They were on the frontier, so they would join together to form a common church, a union church. Well, if you wanted to belong to the Missouri Synod, you had to be a confessional church. And that meant that the pastor and its members all have to sign off on the Book of Concord. And they had to agree in their preaching. They would only have Lutheran pastors. And in their communion, they would only commune Lutheran communicants. And churches that didn't want that, Well, then they couldn't join the Missouri Synod. And I'll give you one interesting little tidbit on this. The host church for the Synod's first convention, which was the first Lutheran church in Chicago, wasn't really a Lutheran church. It was one of these mixed churches. And so it did not join the Missouri Synod. And subsequent to that convention, that congregation split when their pastor, who was Lutheran, Missouri Synod, said we have to be a consistently Lutheran congregation with Lutheran communicants only. So that was really the test. What do you teach? What do you preach? And do you put that into practice in your preaching, teaching and communion?
1: Talk about the rise of the larger ecumenical movement that certainly included and swept up the Missouri Senate, but it was pretty much across American Christendom.
2: Yeah, you can even say across world Christendom, particularly first with respect to um, Protestantism, but then Orthodox and Catholics got into that mix later as well. I think everybody recognizes that in a perfect world, we would not have denominational differences. All Christians would be together in one church but that's not possible because we have disagreements fundamental disagreements about what the Bible says about lots of important issues I mean among them how it is that you enter a right relationship with God is it through faith in Jesus Christ alone or is it with faith plus a lot of other stuff so we have different denominations for lots of different reasons but some of those reasons are doctrinal and practical as we've just been talking about. Well, by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, higher criticism basically has been uh, rotting away the doctrinal foundations in all the churches in Europe and in America too. So that meant for lots of folks and lots of churches, doctrine was no longer really so important as it had been earlier. Because if you no longer believe that the Bible is the Word of God from beginning to end, and it could reflect different theologies, could have mistakes and so forth in it, why should you be fighting about doctrine when you no longer agree that the Bible is an infallible source of doctrine? So that kind of attitude has been working away at these denominational differences. Furthermore, in the 19th century Protestants began in a very big way to confront the mission field in this world. Many, many places that had had no gospel preaching at all, missionaries now began to go to. And one of the things that the missionaries began to feel was, uh, we don't really want to transplant denominationalism. We think maybe in the face of this rank paganism, maybe we ought to cooperate and do things together instead of doing them denominationally. And so that, too, began to work against this idea that doctrine really is important, and maybe we can overcome some of those differences by making compromises or ignoring certain things and so forth. Anyway, the ecumenical movement starts to take off at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And in America, it begins to catch on through the creation of things like the Federal Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, also through movements within denominations uh, to bring smaller church bodies together into one big presbyterian church or one big methodist church or even one big lutheran church and so christians of all sorts were confronted then with this ecumenical movement and they had to figure out whether they were going to connect with it whether they were going to try to do away with some of these denominational differences or what their attitude was going to be and That included the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Were they simply going to say, well, we're content to be by ourselves and it doesn't matter whether we're in fellowship with anybody else or make efforts to eliminate doctrinal differences or practical differences? Well, the Synod said no. And beginning, well, really the first part of the century, we started to see a movement within the Missouri Synod to see if they can't, or we, I should say, eliminate some of the differences that it previously divided from other Christian groups, particularly other American Lutheran groups. And so that began, and you know, there was some success if you just think about it practically. Through the course of the 20th century, the English Missouri Synod came into the German Missouri Synod to form today's Missouri Synod with an English district. The Finnish Lutheran Church joined or merged with the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church around 1960. And then in the 1970s, the Slovak Evangelical Lutheran Church joined the Missouri Synod and became the SELC district. So those would be some expressions of our own synod's participation in this big, big movement of 20th century Christianity that we call the ecumenical movement.
1: Dr. Cameron McKenzie is our guest. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible. We're talking about church fellowship. And on the other side, we'll discuss the controversy over fellowship entering the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org.
3: Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess.
0: Lutheran, it's not a label, it's a confession. You're listening to Issues Etc. Peace Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chehalis, Washington. Biblical, historic Christianity, whose source is scripture, whose heart is the gospel. If you're in Southwest Washington, join us for the divine service. You will receive Jesus, crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of your sins. We promise. For more information, call us at 360-748-4108. To learn more, visit FLSplano.org. FLSplano.org.
1: Welcome back to Issues, Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about church fellowship in our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible with Dr. Cameron McKenzie of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, how did that controversy over fellowship that was raging in the rest of Christendom begin in the LCMS?
2: Well, in the course of the 19th century, as I said, the Synod had been unable to establish fellowship with the Buffalo Synod. There was also an Iowa Synod that we had tried but could not reach full agreement on. And then there had been a big fight that divided our fellowship that we once had established between ourselves and the Ohio Synod. And that fight was over the doctrine of predestination. And it could not be resolved. The Missouri Synod taught, according to the scriptures, that Christ has indeed died for all, and he loves all, and justification by faith is available to all. But it also taught, as the scriptures do, that God has chosen some for salvation. And the reason that you or I or anybody else ever comes to faith is because God chose to save us from all eternity. Make sure we would hear the gospel, believe and so forth. Well, that was rejected by the Ohio Synod. And it was a bitter fight and left the scars of division very deeply held within that generation that had actually fought that fight. Well, we get now to the ecumenical movement. We're a couple of generations later, and people in the Missouri Senate, along with those in the Ohio Senate, the Iowa Senate, the Buffalo Senate, said, you know, those old fights were a long time ago. And maybe if we take a fresh look at some of those issues, we'll find ourselves in agreement after all. The combatants were dead and gone, the original ones, so let's take a fresh look. And so these groups formed a um, committee, an intersynodical committee, that over a period of years worked on all of those doctrinal issues and then established a consensus from the committee on all of the old issues and asked that the various synods who had sent delegates to this committee take a look at those statements, that confession on those old issues. It turned out that none of the synods, with the exception of the Little Buffalo Synod, thought that this statement was adequate. And in the Missouri Synod, a special synodical committee was set up to review these statements, and they rejected them very sharply, criticized them very greatly. And the Missouri Synod ended up rejecting those theses. But that showed that even at that early date, it was the 1920s, you had some folks in the Missouri Synod who thought, well, maybe these theses would be enough to kind of take care of the old issues. And then you had the other folks who said, no, they're just smoothing over the old issues. They're not really resolving those old issues. Well, this then began, it was the first in a serious number of efforts by the Missouri Synod to reach doctrinal agreement with these other church bodies and three of those church bodies, Iowa, Ohio, and Buffalo, formed a new Lutheran church body called the American Lutheran Church. And so in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, the Missouri Synod kept working at trying to establish fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. And at times they thought they'd come close, But then something would happen and it would reveal that, well, after all, they weren't really agreed in doctrine and practice. And so that's what kind of put the ecumenical issue on the agenda of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in these years. It was particularly, can we establish church fellowship on the basis of doctrinal and practical agreement with the American Lutheran Church? One attempt after another was tried and failed, until finally, in 1969, the Missouri Synod did declare a fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. But all during those years, from the 20s to the 60s, the Synod was gradually polarizing between those who thought we still had to have doctrinal agreement before we could enter fellowship, kind of the old Waltherian way of doing things, and a newer element that basically said, well, you know, we're all Lutherans. We all say the Bible is the word of God. We all say that we accept the confessions. Isn't that good enough? Why are we still fighting over predestination? Why are we still arguing about the doctrine of the ministry? That's all in the past. We should just forget it. It's not important in the 20th century. We're all Lutherans. Let's enter fellowship together. So those were the kind of the sides that emerged out of these various efforts to establish fellowship, particularly with the American Lutheran Church. And it's those sides that develop first over the question of fellowship that become the origin of the sides that end up arguing about the Bible in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, that's not to say that the sides are perfectly matched between that older division on fellowship and the newer division on the basis of the Bible. But there was a lot of continuity, historically speaking, between those two sides. So polarization in the Missouri Synod began really with this fellowship issue and especially as it was articulated regarding fellowship with the American Lutheran Church.
1: How significant was the election of John Teachin as president of Concordia Seminary in 1969?
2: Well, that's a very interesting point, Todd. Teachin, of course, becomes a point figure, being a champion of the new attitude toward the Bible, which had become characteristic of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. But that's kind of in the future. He's elected in 1969, and those things are starting to happen. But, you know, the great battle is going to take place a couple of years later. But his election showed that the new attitude toward fellowship was starting to direct things in the Missouri Synod because Teachin had done his doctoral work on the question of church fellowship in American Lutheranism, and he had published it in a book, Which Way to Lutheran Unity? And in that book, he had publicly dissented from the old way of thinking, namely, we need to have doctrinal agreement, to a new way of thinking. All we have to do is say that we agree with the Bible and the confessions, and that should put us into fellowship. So. When he was chosen as president of the seminary, it was as if the power structure of the synod were endorsing this new approach to church fellowship that Tiegen himself was personally advocating.
1: What was wrong with Tiegen's view of church fellowship?
2: Well, that view of fellowship, which just says we can agree on paper and then we'll be in fellowship, ignores the fact that two sides can have radically different interpretations of what that statement on paper means. So that you need to go beyond, if you're really interested in doctrinal agreement, you need to go beyond what somebody can agree to on paper in order to explore what it is that they mean. Let me give you a good example from the 19th century when the King of Prussia wrote up liturgy for both the Reformed and the Lutherans within his kingdom, the kingdom of Prussia, for the words of distributing the consecrated elements, instead of as the Lutherans always said, this is the body of Jesus Christ, this is the blood of Jesus Christ, he said, no, the pastor should simply say, Jesus said, this is my body jesus said this is my blood now both reformed and lutherans agreed that jesus said this is my body and jesus that was never an issue between swingley and luther but beyond a paper agreement as to what jesus said they differed radically upon what jesus meant did jesus mean that this is my body i mean that's what the words say and lutherans always said that's what he meant or swingley No, did he really mean this represents my body? So agreement in words doesn't mean agreement in substance. And that was the real problem for traditionalist in Missouri Synod is that the Teigen approach said, well, let's go with agreement in words and not worry if we have different interpretations, even radically different interpretations about what those words mean. So in the Synod, we affirm the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the Lutheran confessions. But by the time we get to 1969, there are lots of people, even clergy within the Missouri Synod, who would have understood accepting the Bible as the word of God and the Lutheran confessions as a correct exposition of it, who would have understood that as meaning, well, the Bible, is the Word of God because it has the gospel in it. And the confessions are normative, again, insofar as they articulate the gospel. So we've already had a shift as to what the words mean by the time we're trying to use words simply to establish fellowship.
1: We're discussing the Lutheran battle for the Bible and church fellowship with Dr. Cameron McKenzie. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Witness magazine interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. Heresy is the theme of the latest issue and contains columns by issues etc. Guests, pastor Chris Rosebro, Dr. Joel Bierman, Pastor Matt Harrison and others. You can receive an annual print and digital subscription for less than $20. Find out more at cph.org/witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness magazine. When we come back, What was the statement of the 44, and what role did it play?
0: The fundamental question that these parables ask is this is it possible for someone who has fallen away from the faith a baptized child to be brought to repentance and the answer is yes a thousand times yes it has to be yes or i'm damned
1: and so are you pastor peter bender speaking at the 2023 issues etc making the case conference
0: But if we, as earthly parents, love our children in spite of the fact that they rebel and maybe wander from home, how much more does the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus never cease? That is the birthright that you and I have been given in our baptism. That is our consolation.
1: You can watch and listen to Pastor Peter Bender's teaching, Making the Case for a Dying Man's Consolation, and all of the presentations from this year's conference for a contribution of $300. It's available via on-demand video stream or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org.
0: Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org
1: Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now.
0: Defending the faith. Teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest, Dr.
0: Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here and we love the study of it and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy Joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus.
1: Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran Battle for the Bible. We're talking about church fellowship with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. Dr. McKenzie, so how did this controversy affect Missouri and its church
2: partners? Well, one of the kind of tragic parts of this story is that at the time that all begins in the 1920s, the Missouri Synod was in fellowship with other church bodies, in particular and most especially in fellowship with the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. We were in agreement and we belonged along with the Slovak Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the Little Norwegian Synod, we belonged to a synodical conference which was American synods in fellowship with one another. Well, as the Missouri Synod began to polarize over this question of fellowship, the Wisconsin Synod and the Little Norwegian Synod, they began to become more and more concerned with kind of what they saw as a new approach to fellowship within the Missouri Synod. And in spite of lots of meetings, lots of conversation, lots of dialogue, that concern of theirs instead of being resolved continued to be heightened until we get to the 1950s when the newer approach is not only surfacing in the Missouri Senate but is being tolerated in the Missouri Senate, and finally in the 1960s, it really takes over in the 1960s. Well, that development finally led to both the Little Norwegians and the Wisconsin Synod leaving the Synodical Conference and breaking fellowship with the Missouri Synod. Now, by the time they do that, the doctrine of the Bible has already started to develop and become a um, major dividing point between those two synods and our own. But the origin of their concern and still very prominent concern in the resolutions, breaking fellowship with Missouri, were these fellowship questions on which they kind of stuck with the old Missouri position and the new Missouri's position was starting to dominate in the Missouri Senate. So that led to a break in fellowship with the Wisconsin Synod. On the other hand, when the Synodical Conference kind of goes away, then the Missouri Synod feels comfortable in doing church fellowship things with the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America, and then even actually entering into fellowship with the American Lutheran Church in 1969. So the polarization in the Synod leads to the breakup of the Synodical Conference, but the triumph of the new attitude toward fellowship, along with, let's be honest, the new attitude toward the Bible, provides then the occasion for church fellowship with the ALC, but even with the Lutheran Church in America, the Missouri Synod was doing hymnal work, uh, the Missouri Synod was doing uh, mission planting and chaplaincy work. So there were a lot of church fellowship activities that were taking place in the 60s and early 70s that really were very different from the understanding that you needed doctrinal agreement before you did those things that characterized the Missouri Synod in its uh, first decades. Who was Adolph Brooks? Ah, okay. Adolph Brooks was a missionary. And he uh, was a missionary in India. And now here we're gonna go back to the, oh, I'm trying to think it's at least the 1930s. It might've even been the 1920s, but it's that early period where we're talking about these things. And um, Brooks was a missionary, and on his way out to the mission field, he and a couple of colleagues, they were going to India. India was their place of activity. And when they got there, they had to travel still extensively to where they were going. And so they stayed at a Presbyterian, I'm going to call it a hostel. This was uh, something that Presbyterians uh, ran you know, where missionaries could stay uh, and uh, plan their travels and so forth. Anyway, at this hostel, the Presbyterians, it makes a lot of sense, had uh, devotional services and Brooks decided to attend a service and his um, synodical colleagues, and there were just a couple of others, did not. And so the question was whether this was an act of fellowship or not with Brooks saying no, and the other two saying yes. Well, this is in India, and there were some brotherly discussions there on the mission front. Not particularly a resolution. So what Brooks did was to write up a paper describing a new approach to fellowship. Now, I have to be honest, I've never read the paper, so I do not know exactly what he said. But at any rate, he wrote it up, and his paper got sent back to the states to the mission board. Now, I actually think that if Brooks had not written up his paper, nothing more would have happened with this episode. But because he had written up a statement that took issue with the synodical position on church fellowship, it did become an issue, especially when some years later, Brooks returned to America, and it became then a question of church discipline, uh, what to do with Brooks. His uh, position and his uh, approach came to the attention of a couple of synodical conventions, Uh, and there was a lot of hand-wringing because Brooks was a faithful Christian missionary Lutheran, but on the other hand, he would not retract his position regarding fellowship that he had articulated in this document. So, late 30s, I believe it was, Brooks was said by the convention formally, we won't send you back to the mission field unless you recant your position. He refused to do that, and so resigned from the Missouri Senate in 1940. Now, the significance of the Brooks case is that it's really one of the first places where we start to see a practical polarization in the Missouri Synod over questions related to fellowship. Because some in the Senate thought that Brooks was right. Others thought that Brooks was wrong. It took a long time for the Senate to resolve itself. And by the time that the Senate did kind of bring a resolution to the Brooks case, it was starting to become more evident that the Synod was evolving into these two parties. So the Brooks case is important for its kind of surfacing, the polarization on fellowship questions that were developing during this period. Dr. Cameron
1: McKenzie is our guest. It's part five of our Lutheran Battle for the Bible series. We're talking about church fellowship on the other side. Several documents that figured into the story of church fellowship in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040. Or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our
0: mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education, but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com lutheracademy.com. You can teach laypeople theology. You're listening to Issues Etc.
2: Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary,
0: a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next
2: purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Are you
0: a
1: young, single, confessional Lutheran looking for a future spouse or friends who share your faithful confession of Christ? St. John Lutheran Church in Sycamore, Illinois, is hosting its second annual singles retreat on Saturday, August 5th. This retreat is for high school grads through age 30. Visit stjohnsycamore.org and select the Young Singles Retreat icon. That's stjohnsycamore.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, August the 3rd, Dr. Cameron McKenzie is our guest. He's author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran Battle for the Bible. The subject today, Church Fellowship. Dr. McKenzie, what was the statement of the 44, and what role did it play in this fellowship controversy?
2: Well, it comes just a few years after the Brooks case. Also, I should mention that right at the time that the Brooks case was coming to an end in the late 1930s, the Synod actually got very close to establishing fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. In fact, I think it was the Synodical Convention of 1938. I'm pretty sure it was. The Synod passed a resolution in which they accepted as the basis for church fellowship something that, we had written our brief statement and something that the American Lutheran Church had written in response called the Declaration, Sandusky Declaration. And the resolution said that those two documents together will be the basis for future church fellowship. The Synod recognized there were still some issues that the two sides were talking about, but they instructed the President of Synod to place an announcement in the Lutheran Witness when these issues had been resolved, that the two churches were in fellowship. So fellowship became that close in 1938 on the basis of these two documents, and the President of the Synod was authorized simply to announce in the Lutheran Witness that we were now in fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. All right, that didn't happen. Now, one of the reasons that it didn't happen was that the American Lutheran Church was not only talking fellowship with the Missouri Synod, it was also talking fellowship with the United Lutheran Church in America. And I don't want to confuse the listeners, but if the Missouri Synod was the conservative Lutheran Church in America in the 1930s, the United Lutheran Church in America was the liberal church in America in that period. Missouri had tried to have a few conversations with the ULCA about fellowship and had given up very quickly because we were divided on so many things, including the Bible as the Word of God, inerrancy, inspiration. Those things were coming to the fore here in the late 30s and ULCA was going in one direction and we were holding fast to traditional Lutheran biblical position. Well it looks like we're gonna be in fellowship with the ALC, but the very next year, their doctrinal committee announced that they had reached an agreement with the ULCA. Well, that made it impossible for the Missouri Senate to move forward because they couldn't understand how could that be true, that you'd be reaching an agreement with us and also an agreement with this other church body that we knew we weren't in agreement with. So the 1938 resolution did not materialize. But there was enough concern in the Missouri Synod about that failure, that we didn't go into fellowship with the American Lutheran Church, that it led to a number of prominent synodical individuals deciding that they were going to challenge the official position of the Synod and we're gonna do it publicly in a way to move the Synod in another direction that would make it possible for Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastors and congregations to have fellowship, to have practical churchly relations with other Lutheran congregations, particularly those of the American Lutheran Church. And so these individuals met and they formulated resolutions. And finally, in September of 1945, and this is just at the kind of end of World War II, they published their statement. And it was simply called A Statement. And it was a statement of 44 church leaders, for example, five prominent professors from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, the recently retired president of Concordia Theological Seminary in Springfield, Illinois, as well as others, just well-known people in the Missouri Synod, who basically, in these 12 resolutions, said that the synodical position on fellowship requiring unity in doctrine and practice was not correct, especially when applied to other american lutherans if the brooks case showed that these sides were in existence the statement of the 44 were now kind of a the first public attack on the traditional position of the missouri synod and so this was if you weren't following the brooks case and you probably weren't because that was in the small print of the synodical proceedings. It wasn't something that everybody was talking about. And remember, we don't have, eh, I was going to say we don't have unofficial publications. We did have unofficial publications, but they weren't particularly widespread. At any rate, that statement of the 44 was a very big deal. The president of the Senate, his name was John Benkin, saw this as an attack upon uh, synodical doctrine as well as kind of a violation of synodical procedures. I mean, they had done this really before they had discussed with synodical leaders these matters. Uh, and so it became a big controversy over the next couple of years. Special committees were appointed. There was a big meeting with the Council of Presidents. And at one point it looked as if the synodical president was gonna to have to start dealing with these very prominent Missouri Senate members as errorists or schismatics or heretics or something until President Banken worked out a compromise. And the compromise was that the men who had published and signed a statement would retract it. They wouldn't recant it. They wouldn't say we were wrong, but they would retract it as a basis for discussion. In other words, both sides The synodical side and the 44 side would agree that they'd no longer discuss this. But of course, it was a compromise that really didn't work because everybody who was interested still knew about it. And those who advocated one position or another didn't change their mind. And so as a matter of fact, after a statement, it really became visible to anybody who was looking at the Senate, from the standpoint of this question, that there now really were two sides, and a lot of people in between, but two sides on the question of church fellowship. So that is really the significance of a statement.
1: Tell us about the 1967 document, Theology of Fellowship.
2: Theology of Fellowship became then the position, it was developed In the late 50s, 1960s, at the time that the Synodical Conference is breaking up, at the time that the new attitude toward the Bible is being promoted and taught, especially at Concordia St. Louis, at the time when the leadership is shifting, President Banken retired in 1962, and so you've got a new brand of leadership coming to the fore. Uh, and that leadership would actually take us into fellowship with the American Lutheran Church in 1969. So in terms of synodical history, the decade of the 60s and the early 70s was when, let's say, the, the forces of movement, the moderates, the people who wanted the Missouri Synod to be something different from what it had been in its origins, who were embracing ecumenicity, who were embracing uh, higher criticism of the Bible. The 60s are their decade. And as a part of that, there was a new statement adopted by the Synod on fellowship called Theology of Fellowship. And without going into great details about it, what basically this document did was to argue that the synodical position on fellowship previously was too rigorous and that the ultimate test for whether the synod could enter into fellowship was whether a church embraced teachings and practices that violated or falsified the gospel. What it did was to distinguish between groups that were fundamentally heretical and groups that were wrong on some points, but still had enough gospel within their public teaching so that there could be Christians there. I'm going to illustrate this with examples. Today we would say that the Mormons are not a Christian church. They claim to be, but they're not because their doctrine of God, their doctrine of Jesus Christ, their doctrine of salvation, and all of those things, they are fundamentally at odds with historic Christianity. They don't agree with the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, and all of that they reject. And so we'd say they call themselves Christian, but they are not Christian in any meaningful way. And if you belong to a Mormon church, you're not going to hear the gospel. You're not going to be baptized. You're not going to receive the Lord's Supper, no matter what rites and rituals they have. On the other hand... We wouldn't say that about like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There's a church that affirms the Westminster Confession. So they're wrong on the sacraments, but they also affirm the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, the vicarious atonement, justification through faith alone. So if you're a member of an Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you're still hearing the gospel and maybe a lot of errors surrounding it but you're hearing the gospel and we know and believe that where the gospel is present the Holy Spirit works to create faith works to create faith so that body is still Christian the Mormons are not now what the Theology of Fellowship did was to argue that all the passages in the New Testament that warn against false doctrine and having fellowship with those who hold to false doctrine are talking about heretical bodies that deny the fundamentals and are not Christian at all and those passages are wrongly applied to church bodies with a lot of error but still have some gospel. So, for example, this passage was used in the Missouri Synod kind of forever, Romans sixteen seventeen. Take heed, mark those, and avoid those who— Ugh, I'm just not co- quoting correctly. It's like those who teach falsely from what you have talked. And I should have in front of me, but I don't. <laughs> but at any rate, they applied. They said, though well, that applies to the Mormons, but it wouldn't apply to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and likewise other passages, which talk about, being not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, that talks about the Mormon Church, it doesn't talk about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So the theology of fellowship argued that what we're gonna use as the test is whether a church body attacks the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the gospel, or not. So the gospel became kind of the test for fellowship rather than faithfulness to the Bible as the test for fellowship. And that kind of marks the triumph of this new attitude in the Missouri Synod towards uh, fellowship. You can have fellowship with another group that has a lot of errors, but they still got a little gospel, that's okay. And actually, you know, that's what we see in the ELCA. After their formation, they went into fellowship with all kinds of groups that don't hold to the uh, Lutheran confessions. I mean, Teaching had said, well, if they hold Lutheran confessions, we're automatically in fellowship. Well, the ELCA is in fellowship with the Reformed Presbyterians, United Church of Christ. They are in fellowship with the Episcopalians, who argue you got to have bishops in order to be a real church. Well, ELCA now buys into that. The Moravians, the old Zinzendorf group, and the Methodists. They are in fellowship with all of those bodies, and and none of those bodies uh, has accepted uh, the Lutheran confessions, but the ELCA would argue, well, they still have the gospel. We agree in the gospel. Of course, they're not too careful in how they define gospel, but nonetheless, that's the position they hold. So theology of fellowship doesn't do that, but it does look like it's a step in that direction of where you have minimal concern about what's being taught as a basis for fellowship.
1: When we come back, how did the LCMS begin to deal with the false views of fellowship while addressing the false teaching at Concordia Seminary in the 70s? Dr. Cameron McKenzie is our guest. We're talking about church fellowship.
0: We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with Pride Goeth Before Destruction. Set apart by the Spirit, Elemas and Paul, God has brought to Israel a Savior, and we bring you the good news. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast
2: provider.
0: When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten, you think of some stubby
1: old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of the Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies ancient and modern. To
0: pick up your copy, visit cph.org slash witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
1: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etcetera. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible. Today, Church Fellowship. Dr. Cameron McKenzie is our guest. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. Folks, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod operates the second largest parochial school system in the U.S., So what can you expect at a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod School? There's one race, the human race, and Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child. Life begins at conception. All life is precious. Every human being is created in the image of God. There is a right and a wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, man and woman. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman, and there is such a thing as truth and it's found in the personal work of Jesus and His Word. Find out more about a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you. Visit lcms.org slash schools, lcms.org slash schools. Dr. McKenzie, how did the LCMS begin to deal with the false views of fellowship while addressing the false teaching at Concordia Seminary?
2: Well, probably those who are interested in this topic know that when uh, J. A. O. Preuss became president of the Missouri Synod, he believed that he was mandated to kind of look at all of this stuff that was troubling the Synod on the basis of teaching and practice, much of which uh, was being articulated by professors at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. And one of the issues was fellowship. So when he set up a committee that would question uh, the faculty at Concordia St. Louis. One of the issues that surfaced was that some of the professors taught that uh, communion could be shared with non-Lutherans as something that could work for the unity of faith instead of expressing unity of faith. So it was a problem. But much more acute by that time were the issues surrounding the foundation of faith. I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to argue about the Lord's Supper when you can't agree what the Bible teaches is true. I mean, are you gonna argue about the meaning of Jesus' words when some people were teaching that Jesus didn't even say those words? So they set the fellowship issue aside and dealt with the doctrinal issues that you've been talking about, You know, the doctrine of confessions, the doctrine of the Bible, uh, doctrine of the gospel centrism and so forth. But when the dust began to settle, following the Seminex walkout and so forth through the course of the 70s, the Synod began to practice the older way of doing fellowship, namely agreement on doctrine and practice. And this led to the termination of fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. That had been established in 1969, and I believe that it was terminated in 1981. And the reason for its termination was Synod's conviction that the American Lutheran Church was teaching falsely, and among other things about which they were teaching falsely, was the ordination of women. Now, that's the old view, that when you don't agree on doctrine, you are not in fellowship. So we had been in fellowship. We tried to persuade the American Lutheran Church to um, confess true doctrine on the basis of the Bible. They didn't want to, and so we broke fellowship. On the other hand, subsequent to the Seminex walkout, the Synod has worked hard to establish fellowship with churches here in the United States, like the, I think it was the, uh, I'm not going to remember it, but the Association of Lutheran Churches, something like that. And then also with churches around the globe. And when we do that, and I'm sure that happened at this synodical convention as well, those declarations of fellowship occur after there have been serious meetings between ourselves and representatives of those churches about what it is we teach, what it, how it is we practice, and whether we actually are in agreement on doctrine and practice. And it's when we and they are assured of that, that we then enter into fellowship. So the Synod has worked hard then to kind of replace that newer approach that developed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the more traditional approach, representative really not just of Missouri Synod Lutherans, but for Lutherans through the course of history, that we share our pulpits and we share our communion table with those who agree with us and we with they on the basis of the Bible and the Lutheran confessions, doctrine, and practice.
1: What direction, you mentioned this just a little bit, in a few words, what direction did those who left the LCMS during the Seminex crisis, what direction did they go with respect to church
2: fellowship? Let me just mention, and I'm sure you're going to get to it one of these days if you haven't already, one of the essays in our book on um, recovering the issues actually deals with uh, the Seminex professors subsequent to their uh, walking out from Concordia, St. Louis, and I think readers will find that interesting. But institutionally speaking, the pastors and congregations that left the Missouri Synod in the 70s, many of them ended up joining a new group called the Association of the Evangelical Lutheran Churches. And right from the get-go, this new body was interested in an expansive fellowship. Right from the beginning, they joined the Lutheran World Federation, Lutheran World Relief, and other kind of pan-Lutheran groups. Right from the beginning, they wrote to the ALC and the LCA, the two big Lutheran churches besides the Missouri Synod, requesting that they sit down and talk about organic merger, bringing all the Lutherans together. That merger, of course, took place, it was in 1988, I think, when it began, and the ex-Missouri Synod Lutherans were very strong supporters of that, and that group, The ELCA, today's ELCA, when it first came into being, it immediately joined uh, the National Council of Churches, the World Council of Churches, the Lutheran World Federation, but these kind of big, even cross denominational expressions of ecumenicity. And then it very quickly was proceeding toward fellowship. And here's the important point fellowship with non Lutheran church bodies. In other words, uh, no longer were the Lutherans in the ELCA requiring their church partners to subscribe in any way shape or form to the Lutheran confessions. So they become communion partners, preaching partners with the Presbyterians, with the Reformed Church in America, with the United Church of Christ. If memory serves me correctly, that was like in 96 or 97, pretty early in their history, within that first decade. But that means if you go to an ELCA church today and the pastor there is on vacation, they might have a Presbyterian as uh, the guest preacher, the vacancy preacher. Or it could even happen that if you went to an ELCA church, they might have even called a Presbyterian to be their pastor. That's what church fellowship means. It means automatic and easy exchange of pulpits, automatic and easy acceptance into communion. So if you went to communion, you might be communing next to a Methodist. Well, in fact, they probably have open communion anyway, so you might be communing next to a Baptist if he wants to. But my point is, that church body has really jettisoned the Lutheran confessions as establishing any kind of real parameters for the expression of church fellowship. And when you look at the documents on the basis of which they establish church fellowship, often the language refers to agreement in the gospel. Now, that's not defined very precisely but it's not agreement in the Lutheran confession. So the old position of somebody like John Tegen really turns out to be just a step toward a much larger version of church fellowship on the basis of uh, just this kind of nebulous agreement in the gospel.
1: Dr. Cameron McKenzie is our guest. He's author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. He's also a professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. When we come back in our conversation about church fellowship, how did the Seminex controversy help correct the LCMS on fellowship? The
3: church's music from the second century.
1: (laughs) The
3: 6th century The The 12th century The 16th century The 21st Century. For wars, the, time, God, for the best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org
0: Keeping the message straight. Getting the message out. You're listening to Issues Etc.
2: Trinity Lutheran Church in Valonia, Indiana, is a mighty fortress that stands as a bulwark against the attacks of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. We are located in Jackson County, about two miles south of historic Fort Valonia on State Road 135. Join us every Lord's Day for Sunday school and Bible class at 830 and divine service at 930. Come and receive the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation from God's Valiant One, Jesus Christ, who has conquered death and holds the field forever.
1: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part five of our series on the Lutheran Battle for the Bible. Today we're talking about church fellowship with Dr. Cameron McKenzie. In about 10 minutes, it's Issues Etc. comment line and listener email. Dr. McKenzie, how did this Seminex controversy inadvertently help correct the LCMS on church fellowship?
2: Well, what it did was make the Synod kind of rethink parts of Synod's history to which the Seminics really was making a challenge. I mean, the big one, of course, was the Bible. And so we really had to decide, well, okay, what does it mean to accept the Bible as the word of God? And we decided in line with Christian tradition that it meant that God had given us this book through the inspiration of men so that the words that they wrote were the words that God wanted. So every word of the Bible is God's word. But we had to kind of rethink that and we had to address these attacks and so forth. Well, the same thing on fellowship. We had to kind of rethink, well, what does it mean for us to open our pulpits, to draft hymnals, to do mission plans? Do we have to do this in a way that's faithful to the Bible and the Lutheran confessions? And we agreed, well, yes, we do. And so that necessitated then for us to do these activities with those who agree with us that the standard has to be the Bible and the Lutheran confessions. And likewise, our communion practice. That since we know from scriptures that going to communion together is a way in which we confess our faith together, we realize that we can't have people communing who don't believe the same thing. They're not confessing the same faith. And so that practice, which our Lutheran forebears. Had always done we ended up doing again because we had to rethink it and decide whether we really thought that that was right or not we came to the conclusion yes that this is the biblically faithful position so that we commune at our altars people who are in churches that agree with ours rather than having this kind of promiscuous communion in which anybody who believes anything can come And that's, in effect, saying, well, it doesn't matter what you believe or whether these errors you have matter. They don't matter. You just come to communion. So, at any rate, the Seminex and the polarization led us to kind of rethink these things again and articulate them afresh, but also anew, at least for the generation then that had to confess them post-Seminex.
1: Why does the LCMS guard church fellowships so carefully? What's at stake?
2: Well, what's at stake is uh, God's truth. That's really what this is about. And that's why it became a big issue in the 20th century, because we have had this in the West especially, kind of this departure from the notion that God has spoken in any sort of decisive way through the scriptures. Now, you know, church is not a matter then of going and hearing what's true. Church is a matter of going and having a feel-good experience, maybe being encouraged to take a certain political view or get exercised about the environment or something. But there's no real divine truth content in your worship, in your doctrine, in your kind of Christianity. Well, that doesn't work if you at all listen to the Bible. I mean, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. And that word will be the truth and it will set you free. It's Jesus' word, not Muhammad's word or... Bob Jones's word or whatever, it's Jesus' word. And Jesus said, beware of false prophets. What's he mean by a false prophet? He doesn't mean somebody who looks bad. He means somebody who's teaching wrong violates the scriptures. The scriptures are a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path, the scriptures. So that's what fellowship is involved with. We wanna make sure that when somebody comes to a Lutheran church, they're gonna hear a sermon that comes from the conviction that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Lutheran confessions got it right. So that people are hearing the truth because it's the truth that the Holy Spirit uses to save. The Holy Spirit doesn't use errors. He doesn't use false statements. And confidence in certain false statements might actually land you in hell instead of in heaven. So God's truth, we're convinced that there is such a thing, and that's what God uses to save and encourage Christians. So that's what we want in our churches. And likewise, communion. We want to confess the faith together that is the true faith. And as I indicated before, if people go to communion who do not confess the same faith, that communion says, it doesn't matter what faith you have. It doesn't matter whether you hold to the truth or not. So, for example, if I commune with Baptists, that means I don't think that baptizing babies, it's necessary to believe that you should baptize babies, no matter what Jesus says. Go ye and make disciples of all nations. Well, no, that doesn't matter, because if you don't, you can still go to communion with us. So in effect our communion practice is a confession of that same truth and that truth really does matter it matters what you believe about baptism it matters what you believe about salvation and these days it matters what you believe about sexual morality you know there are a lot of churches who think that anything goes you go to communion together you're saying well those things don't matter we'll commune together anyway but they do matter it makes a big difference from the standpoint of biblical Christianity, whether you are committed to the sexual morality as described by the scriptures themselves. So it's the truth of God's Word that is at stake in our fellowship practices. And that word is important because it's that word that God uses to convict of sins, to present the Savior, To exhort and encourage the christian life we live by that word that truth
1: finally what can we learn by observing the alternative view of fellowship as it's played itself out in church bodies like the evangelical lutheran church in america
2: well i think the big thing that i would say and i'd ask any elca person is what does it mean to be a lutheran what does it mean to be a christian i mean Obviously, the stuff that's in the Lutheran confessions or in the small catechism doesn't mean all that much. I mean, maybe it means a little bit to you. You know, you've looked at the small catechism, you believe what Luther said about the Lord's Supper. But it can't mean all that much if you welcome to your communion table people who don't believe those things about the Lord's Supper. And likewise, the preaching, or or let's say mission work. You're going to cooperate with the um, Methodists, about doing mission work. Okay, but the Methodists have this whole history of commitment to rules and regulations for Christian living. The United Methodist Church today doesn't stand for much in terms of those rules, but their tradition, that Christianity is a matter of the way you live. Lutherans have believed that missions revolve about the message of law and gospel, sin and grace, Jesus Christ our Savior. So now you're saying, okay, we're gonna do mission work. And well, okay, you can hold to this view. It's all about rules and regulations. Or you can hold to our view. It's all about Jesus Christ, the savior. And it really doesn't matter. Well, I mean, those things either matter or they don't. But in effect, in your church, they don't matter. So the question I would ask is, well, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? And I don't know what answer you'd give because the ecumenical movement has kind of removed The doctrinal standards. It's eroded those confessions of faith which tell you what Christianity means because it kind of means whatever you want it to mean in an ecumenical church.
1: Dr. Cameron McKenzie is professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of a chapter in the new book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. You could purchase this new book on the Talk on Demand Archives page at issuesetc.org, or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 and request Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. Dr. McKenzie, thanks.
2: You are very welcome, Todd. Thank you for having me.
1: After the break on this Thursday, August the 3rd, it's time for listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line.
3: We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start. The foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. Cph.org.
0: Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713 713-
1: When pastors talk about us, they say Ad crucem. When laity mention us, they say Ad crucem. When telemarketers call us, they say ADC Rucam. But a Luther Rose
0: by any name will smell as sweet. Ad crucem is the place to go. For greeting
3: cards and artwork, jewelry and ornaments, housewares, church certificates, church
1: banners, and much more, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
0: Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com The radio voice of the Lutheran faith for the 21st century.
1: You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Faith Lutheran, Vista, California. Hope Lutheran, Highland, Illinois. Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, Peekskill, New York. Our Redeemer Lutheran, Dubuque, Iowa. Redeemer Lutheran, Brook, Texas. St. Athanasius Lutheran, Fairfax, Virginia. St. Paul Lutheran, Clorinda, Iowa, Trinity Lutheran, Austin, Texas, and Zion Lutheran, Columbus, Ohio. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click support, donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.